0: Welcome to episode 143. Today, Martin Brendit joins us to talk about how we can reimagine grammar instruction for MLs. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families.
1: Your beautiful smile,
0: Grammar is by far the most difficult part of my job. It feels so forced and lifeless, like something I'm doing to students instead of giving them a tool to create dynamic messages. But now that I've interviewed Martin Branded, I have a different perspective of grammar instruction. This conversation was really a masterclass, a TED talk and a keynote wrote into one inspiring conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to have another grammar nerd on the podcast. <laughs> Fellow educator Marty Brandt is here to talk about his book called Between the Commas. Marty, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Tom. It's great to be here.
0: Would you tell us um, about your context of where you're teaching right now? Just to give us situated.
1: Uh, yeah, I teach at Independence High School in San Jose, California. I've been teaching there for 30 years now. Um, sort of gave my youth to that place. And as you can see, all gray. And um, I, uh, I went in to Independence thinking that I was going to, you know, make everybody's lives better right away. with. My, my enthusiasm and my passion for my subject matter, for my teaching, for my students. And really, I just kind of fell on my face for a couple of years in a row. Just everything went wrong. Everything I tried to do was a, a complete disaster. And um, I, I, I really had to kind of pick myself up and dust myself off and start all over again, kind of every school year for the first several years and um, I've gotten to the point now, however, where uh, I, I just really, really love what I do. And I love working with these wonderful students um, who often get a bad rap, um, both as, you know, for their generation, you know, it, it's, it's always the, sort of a, a habit of the older generation to dismiss the, the younger generation and to wring our hands at the prospect of the future. And um, I don't believe that. I don't feel that way. I look at these kids and I think, one, they're a lot more decent and kind and loving to one another than my generation ever was. I mean, we were, we were awful. So, um, and, I, and I also feel like they're underrated with regard to their linguistic prowess. And once I understood this, once I came to realize that they didn't need to be taught so much as they needed to be shown what they already have in them and to be able to, um, to, to lead them in the right direction with that, then teaching there became an absolute joy. And so even though I'm kind of old and, and getting a little cranky, um, and I'm, you know, I'm getting pretty close to retirement now. I just still feel very, very uh, fortunate to be able to work with these kids at Independence High School. Independence, by the way, is this very large campus. And there's a sort of a persistent myth about it, that it was originally intended as a junior college, because it's so big and it occupies several acres. And. Uh, that's not true. It's just one of those things that helps people make sense of its size. And originally, when I was first beginning there, it was about 4,000 to 4,400 students. And now our enrollment has gone down for various reasons over the last 10 years. And now it's about 2,800 students. And so, you know, it's kind of an interesting place when you say you know, 2,800 students is under enrolled. You know, but the great majority of my students have uh, at one time or another been classified as English language learners, maybe not the great majority, but I would say maybe at least, at least 50% to 60%. Um, And so if I go through my rosters on, on the um, computer program that we use the platform, there's a little flag that says, you know, for various uh, distinctions that each student will have, you know, some might, some might be still classified as English learners, others will be classified as um, as English proficient after having taken various tests over the years. And whenever I go through that roster, I see those flags and I, and it, it's consistently in about the 60% range of kids who are either EL still or were once classified as such. And, um, and it's a real immigrant community um, where I teach. Uh, most of the students come from um, either, well, not necessarily them, but their parents, but many of them too will have come from uh, various uh, Pacific Rim countries. You know, a lot of students from Vietnam, a lot of students from the Philippines. Um, uh, there's a, a sizable Latino um, population, and, um, and so it's a real linguistic mix and to be thrown into that mix as a, as a new teacher is, it could be a recipe for disaster because you might bring in all the wrong assumptions about language, about teaching and about teaching language. And, you know, you you can easily become some kind of, uh, you know, grammar enforcer pointing out all the errors you know pulling your hair out in the face of all these errors and yeah and um and i and i have come to believe that there's a lot less reason for that kind of frustration than we often tell ourselves
0: well marty just hearing you talk i can just tell that you've you've given 30 years of love and commitment an investment to your school community and your students are so lucky to have such a kind-hearted person um, teaching them as part of their career.
1: Thank you.
0: You I think you one of the things you talked about was like instead of like the that grammar person uh, and, and you move towards like what kids can do, right? right? And you talked about like the Gen Z population of like moving towards an asset-based perspective seeing them in the best light and that's and that's yes. informing your practice so i'm like whoo you are a gifted and wise teacher
1: <laughs> Hard. it was hard one <laughs> that whatever wisdom i've got yes, it came the hard way but i think that's that might be one of the aspects of wisdom that um doesn't necessarily go into the definition is that you generally acquire it the hard way
0: right it's uh someone said how are you be successful uh, one word experience okay how do you get experiences one word mistakes
1: exactly yeah
0: (laughs) so you've had 30 years there and you've worked with lots of multilingual students so which is really great for our audience would you tell us or share with us a story about just teaching it doesn't have to be about multilingual students that has informed your practice to this day
1: well you know one of the things that I needed to learn when I first started to teach was the fact that, um, my students are, I don't want to say, necessarily say better at language than I am, but I needed to give their lang- their linguistic prowess. It's due, you know, a great number of them. Um, well, they already speak whatever their original language was, And then they speak English and they speak English as if they stepped off the set of friends. You know, they sound exactly like, you know, what we, I mean, the word native is kind of freighted, you know, but they sound like native speakers of English. Quite proficient. Um, Yeah. Um, And so, uh, and then in addition to that, I had to learn that they're not just, you know, how can I put this? That they're actually they've actually got multiple languages, m- many of them. You know, so a student might speak Vietnamese, might speak some some Cantonese, might speak some, and and, and will speak English, and might be taking French or Spanish or German. And so, what this shows me is one is the term that keeps coming up is their linguistic prowess that they are incredible users. Of language, um, that they uh, they acquired whole grammatical systems, um, more than one. By the time they were a few years old, without the help of a single worksheet, you know, without the help of a single lesson on grammar, um, we have this innate, hardwired ability to master grammatical systems, and. I'm not sure what the research says about it, but I think it probably helps to, to acquire these early in life. But even if you don't acquire them early in life, you know, once you're immersed in it, once you find yourself speaking this language um, frequently, daily with, with the other speakers of it, you, you know, you learn it. Um, you might learn it with a significant accent or, you know, um, some, some things that make you sound you know, as if you're uh, not a native speaker, but I mean, what does that matter? Right. Um, and so, uh, really what I had to overcome was this notion that I was the master of the language and that the students, um, were going to, uh, to benefit from my expertise when, what I really had to really understand was that they, um, are masters of language themselves and that i had to find ways to bring that out of them so um, early on i at one point i talk about this in the book um, uh, one of the things i just sort of stumbled upon was the idea of of sentence modeling um, because um, a lot of their sentences were you know uh, very problematic to say the least and um and so i thought well I guess, you know, the biggest problem with, with student writing is not that it's incorrect. It's generally that it's kind of uninteresting. And the real problem with this is that the students themselves are not under uninterest are, are deeply interesting. You know, they're fantastic. It's so much fun to talk with them and, and get to um, get, to get, you know, get their perspectives on things. And, um, and yet, all of this, just this personality that they bring into the classroom disappears the moment they put a pencil to paper, and uh, and so um, I thought to myself, well, you know, when when I read certain magazine articles, I'm always um, impressed with the writing of magazine articles because um, they seem to just sort of lead you along. the 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 sentences are are sort of easy on you and, and they move you so easily from one thing to the next. And uh, the example that I had was the that was started with was uh, the opening line of John Krakauer's article in, in Outside Magazine that became Into Thin Air, um, which was his best-selling book about the 1996 Everest disaster. And the opening line in it goes, uh, straddling the top of the world. This is, so he begins the story with him at the top of Mount Everest. So it doesn't start with him in Kathmandu or leaving Seattle. It starts with him at, at the top, you know, presumably already the, the climax of the story. Of course, it's not, it turns out. But so, so he begins with straddling the top of the world, one foot in Tibet and one in Nepal. I cleared the ice from my oxygen mask, hunched a shoulder against the wind and stared absently at the vast sweep of earth below. And I thought to myself, "Why can't my sentence? Why why can't my students write a sentence like that? Why, when they write, is it just sort of simple declarative sentences, often punctuated incorrectly, like commas between these sentences and things like that? Why can't they do that?" And that became the sort of my 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 grail, you know, my my great quest was to encourage my students to um, to try new things sentence wise, and so I broke that line up in the, the other subsequent sentences of that same paragraph. I broke it up into just grammatical chunks with space underneath each of them. And I had the students see if they could imitate it, um, make their own version of, these, of this sentence. So where he says straddling the top of the world, you could say something like standing in front of the re- refrigerator, you know. Uh, one foot in Tibet and one in Nepal, you know, um, you know, my hand on the handle, and, uh, you know, my eyes searching the shelves, you know, uh, and then, then it's just subject and three verbs. I, I cleared the eyes for my awesome, you know, I found the, the chocolate sauce reached in and, um, and threw it to my brother, you know, so it's something as simple as that. Um, and, but I discovered there was some success, but I discovered that for my students. And I think for most people, um, and most phrases look pretty much the same. they all look the same and, and and there were different kinds of things going on in that sentence and so so it took me a while to figure out what these things were myself because I didn't know what they were any more than they did. The only advantage I had was that I could uh, identify what they were doing you know I knew I, I understood in some kind of an implicit way what the features were of each of these things and, and make my own version of it. And so, uh, you know, one of my students came up and this was a pretty rough class. And he wrote something like, you know, sitting on my bed, one hand holding a 40 and the other with a hand on the ball, the other one on my, you know, on the bong, um, I, I took a deep hit, you know, uh, drank from the can and waited to get high, you know. And um, so I looked at that and I said, I mean, "You know, here we." I was just talking about how the students are very interesting, right? And and here is a very interesting young man, you know. And uh, and so I had, on one hand, I wanted to say, you know, you should say no to drugs, you know. But on the other hand, I had to admit this was a damn good sentence. And so I said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Go finish that up. You know, so, <laughs> this, this led to this success led to sort of a developing curiosity about using models like that um, or modeling assignments like that to help students understand what they can do at the sentence level. I think most successful writing, most writing that is Um, memorable, that has has power, Um, it succeeds because of what happens at the sentence level. And we spend a lot of time um, in English classes talking about things like paragraphs and and essays. And um, as I've said in the the book, um, I've read lots and lots of essays that are perfectly well organized with all of the features and conventions that we English teachers so earnestly impose on them and that but which still are not worth reading because of what happens at the sentence level um they're they, they're ultimately either uninteresting or uh, well I guess that's really the main thing is that you know they're they're not worth reading because there's nothing interesting happening there's no real thinking going on um there's only this kind of miserable attempt to reproduce these things that we've required of them and and that takes all the joy out of it And so I want them to be able to work with that, work with their sentences, think about their sentences. One of the other things that I've been thinking about is the fact that I think there's a a real misunderstanding or a misconception about sentence work. And I've even heard it coming from my own district office. And that's this assumption that the sentence has been learned. The sentence has been taken care of sometime in elementary or middle school. Uh, and that's simply just not true. Uh, I want my students to think about their sentences. And when we say to them things like, you know, reread your essay and see what you can do to make it better. Um, what we really mean by that is, you know, what's happening at the sentence level? There's That's kind of the implied instruction there. What's happening to make? What can you do to make these sentences, um, you know, swing to use a, a musical term, you know, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And um and but if your students don't understand or haven't been prepared to to look for certain features of the sentence, then then that that advice is really kind of useless, you know. Um, and I've discovered that to be the case too. you you tell your students, yeah, read your paper again before you turn it over or turn it in. And well, if they don't know what they're looking for, then what's the point of even saying that? So the sentence needs to be taught, is my argument. Um, and But it needs to be taught in a way that um, that begins with what they know and shows them what they already know. Because a lot of these things they already use in conversation. They use it in, in their speech. And so it becomes a question of bringing that personality that shows up in their conversation into their writing.
0: Can you talk more about that? How do you, what do you mean by the kids already know it or they bring it.
1: Um, Okay. So if you take a, if you take a sentence like, um, you know, let's see here. Um, My, my brother. Yeah. The biggest doofus I've ever met. um, Told me that uh, you know, that my team was going to win whatever. Something else. It doesn't make sense, but you, know, you see what I mean. So when, when students take an opportunity to interrupt that subject, my brother, with the verb, to talk a little smack about the brother, right? My brother, the biggest doofus ever. Um, what they're doing is they're, that's, that's that's a noun phrase, a positive, okay? There's a grammatical term for that particular addition, that particular phrase. And so, um, However, it doesn't necessarily occur to them to use it in their writing, even though they already make use of it in their speech. Um, So I gave it to my teacher, who's a total, you know, uh, I gave it to my first period teacher, who's a total tyrant, you know. What they've just done there is they dropped a dime on the teacher, you know, or that's called the adjective clause. It's the, uh, you know, taking that who and using it to, Um, effectively describe the teacher um, after, after that word teacher. Okay. So these are things that they already make use of. And so it's important when we talk about grammar and grammar instruction to start with the fact that they already use these things, that it's a different, slightly different animal to be able to write them because it takes a, a, a certain amount of you know the issue of punctuation comes up um, and the issue of uh, I guess what you'd call it in rhetorical terms is invention if you if it doesn't occur to you to use it, then it's not going to be there um, where so a lot of times you can f- point to the students where it could go or where it's lurking there ready to be placed. And I call these I call these latent latent, um, free modifiers, um, these modifying additions, oftentimes they're lurking right there in the student's errors. And, and, and instead of saying to the student wrong, you know, check, you know, uh, instead you say to them, Ooh, this is, this is so close to being a perfect smack talker. See me about that, you know, and it becomes, um, it becomes an opportunity for stimulating and encouraging growth rather than some kind of punitive approach like why did you do this to me why do you keep making these mistakes you know we have to accept the mistakes as an important part of the learning process
0: well i'm first of all before i give my comment i wanted to say that uh, you're a really great podcast guest because oh. instead of having the host like try to pull and like pepper questions at you, you uh-huh. just go into your flow of, <laughs> of conversation. I think there's only like four or five guests out of my 150 guests that have done that, and that that's oh, a really? very rare s- skill. And Jeff Anderson did that. I asked right. three questions total. Really? <laughs> and he just talked like the whole time. I was like, mm? and if, I I'll even have to have to
1: meet him sometime.
0: Oh, he's you. Uh, you two are on the same wavelength. I mean, mm-hmm. and I was gonna say that you have such an affirming and assets-based perspective. When I ask that question of like, tell me more about what that means. Like, It's already in the kids. It is in the kids already. Right. It's how they speak already. We're just trying to say like, you already speak like this, this lyrical way of speaking, now bring it into the writing. And you also did a really great job. And I wrote, uh, wrote down the, the words, he's an experienced teacher of multilinguals. Because mm-hmm. your strategy of like taking the sentence breaking it up to different parts, having kids providing a space below for each part, and then having st- students try to practice that. That's the right. writing workshop. That's mm-hmm. the mini lesson. That's scaffolding, making language, making the process scaffolded for students. And I was like, wow, he's a really great teacher, of, uh, effective teacher of MLs.
1: And that, you know, and that happened as a complete accident. You know, I, I was just desperate for something to do that day with this really challenging class. And, uh, and so I did that. Um, and then later on, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uncertainty with English teachers about whether you're doing it right, you know? And, um, and so many years later, I discovered that teaching writing is the great professional problem, at least for me. And that it's, it's what I want to spend my career doing is learning more about teaching writing. And and it's a wonderful thing to to drive your your career and to feel like there's real growth happening for you, and not just your students. And so um, so once I made this discovery that teaching writing was the thing. Most English teachers, I think, hate teaching writing. By the way, um, because we're into literature, you know, and and the writing is where we feel most exposed or most anxious or most unhappy with our work and our students' work. But once I figured out that the writing was, was everything to me, um, I found a program in uh, a master's degree program at San Francisco State University in composition. And I didn't even know that such a thing existed. I remember saying to my friend, Jonathan Lovell, who is a professor at San Jose State, saying to him, Jonathan, is there a program for a master's in English that focuses on the teaching of writing because I didn't want a master's in literature. I didn't want at this point, some, a seminar in Milton, you know, that wasn't going to help me with my students. I needed something that helped me become a better and more effective teacher of writing. Well, they didn't have anything at San Jose State Alas. And, um, and so I thought, okay, well, there's a dream that died. And then about a year later, I was looking through and I thought, I wonder San Francisco State, which is only about 45 miles from my house and it could be a a reasonable commute. I thought, I wonder if they do that. And I looked it up and sure enough, they had this master's in composition, which was aimed at teaching freshmen in college composition and first year comp, one of the great traditions of the American university, problematic tradition. And um, and so I, I thought, well, that's close enough, you know. that's, that's that's probably as good as you're going to get it, you know? And so, so I signed up for it and I took this class called the very first class I took. Well, it was, yeah, it was the very first class. It was called grammar and rhetoric of the sentence. And, you know, I guess it's indicative of the kind of weirdo I am that when I saw that title, grammar and rhetoric of the sentence, I went, Oh yes. Oh, I can hardly wait. (laughs) Let me at it. You know? (laughs) And so, um, and, and it was a really hard class um, and a lot of my classmates um, cohort members who uh, I really just adore and' wonderful people. they just hated it um, and um, for various reasons and and I understand I understand the, the hatred of such things. I understand where it comes from. but for me I was like you know I, I respect the fact that you hate this class but I can hardly wait to bring this back to my students. You know? And so one of the interesting things about it is that it's, it was called grammar and rhetoric. Now, grammar is one of the most misunderstood words in the English language, because people will say grammar when they mean punctuation or grammar when they mean spelling or grammar when they refer to usage. Now, the grammar, grammar, grammar. But the real essence of grammar is uh, syntax. It's the the order of words such that it will make sense in a particular language. And it's why it's, it's so that which is grammatical, for example, is, you know, why we say in English, we will say the big house, you know, um, and in Spanish, you would say the house big, la casa grande. And so that's grammar, you know, the, is the order of words. And the neat thing about this particular class was that it understood that Um, that the order of words also applies to rhetoric. And so, whereas grammar is the order of words for understanding rhetoric is the ordering of words for effect. And so, for example, if you say that, uh, you know um, let's see here. Uh, I was not there for, I was not there for the company, um, but for Let's see, no, I was was there for the company, not for the food, okay? Hey, not a bad sentence, okay? But if you say, I was there not for the company, but for the food, you've made a grammatical and rhetorical change with a particular effect in mind. And that effect in this case is to emphasize the final point that you've just made, not for this, but for that. And whatever ends, whatever comes in that last place, in in at least in English, I'm not sure what in other languages will carry more effect. It's the last thing that the, the reader is, or the listener is going to to take from that particular sentence, and so it's a it's not just a grammatical shift; it's also a rhetorical shift. And so there's this wonderful place where grammar and rhetoric meet, and it is syntax, it is word placement, and. So this is another thing for students to think about with regard to their sentences. Um, another layer of the of the great mystery, if you will, you know. Um, and so once I took that class, I I was off and running with uh, with my sentence stuff because I discovered in that class that what I had done. This is to get back to that problem of teachers thinking, English teachers thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm doing it right that what I had done that day with those sentences, um, with that sentence modeling assignment from John Krakauer, had in fact a very long and respected um, place in language, in, in writing instruction, sentence modeling like that. And I read some of the very first things I read in that class were um, essays written for in, in uh, support or to, to advocate that kind of instruction. I thought, oh, so I guess, I was doing it right it was just an accident it was a shot in the dark but i hit the target
0: i think you just uh, gave me a master class in grammar instruction you explained what grammar is and it's not just about mechanics right uh, right it's not just about punctuation it's really about sentence placement a word placement and for effect
1: right and phrase and phrase additions you know and and where you place those phrase additions you know yeah
0: yeah you're teaching kids what you're You're teaching kids that writing is an intentional act. It doesn't happen by accident. Message and comprehension, we create the effect that we want readers to
1: have. Right, and and one of the things that students do, the, the, the really great challenge, I think, is the fact that students write accidentally. Um, and I think there's a place for accidental. The, the, I love the accidents of thought. I love the accidents that we come across when we write. And we, we don't write with necessarily knowing what we're going to say. The beautiful thing about writing is that we often find out through our writing what we have to say. And so there is an accidental sort of component to it. Um, the problem with my students is that they, they're not in, necessarily engaging in the level of thinking that I want them to. And they're just trying to get it done. And so instead of it being intentional and thinking about what they're saying as they're writing it and think about where it might lead them, um, they are instead just, like I said, m- a lot of them just, it's its such a source of anxiety and and challenge to them that they just want to finish.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I'm, as you said that, I was thinking about students and their writing samples or the writings that, that they produce. The ones that create the most beautiful sentences, the most effective sentences are the ones that are, inc- you could tell there is intentionality in the right. in the words they use, but the placement of the words and the order of the ideas in the sentence. Uh, yeah, it's just, I guess the challenge is, how do we make writing assignments that bring out that intentionality in students, right?
1: Right, right. And one of the things that I propose in the book is, uh, would the um, there's the, one of the issues I came up upon in my master in that master's program was learning about uh, sentence coherence and and how sentences work together to to create meaning and and actually even before no no it must not have been I I, I came up with this lovely idea it's one of the, you'll have to forgive me but I'm very proud of this uh, insight and it's probably not even original but. But it was original to me. <laughs> I'm like Columbus discovering America, right? And <laughs> it's, uh, um, but it was original to me. I, and, I, and I remember saying to, showing it to my friend, Jonathan again. And he, he was the, um, the director of the San Jose Area Writing Project. And so we did a lot of things, a lot of work together. And, uh, and I said to him, I wrote it down, each sentence that we write contains within it some germ or seed which should sprout or blossom in the next sentence and that is how we create coherence and I even created a little model for it that I use that I give to my students and I have them paste in their composition books sometimes I create little composition booklets for them to use with and I always have the model as part of it and basically what it has is on one side, it's got the word sentence, meaning any sentence that you write. And then from that several arrows leading to questions. And so the first question, the top arrow, lead, the top arrow leads to the first question, which is basically, what do you mean? So if you say my room is a mess, you know, the old show not tell, you know, what do you mean? What do you mean it's a mess? Show me what it means, what it looks like, you know? And this is, I think the sort of default uh, setting for discourse. Explaining what we mean, but um, I had made the mistake of thinking for many years that that question was enough. But what happened with my students was that you can really only explain what you mean for a few sentences before you start spinning your wheels, and that's where you lead to the agonizing cycle of BS in writing, right? And so, so the students just start repeating themselves in other words, and 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 adding a lot of BS and and no wonder they hate writing if it's going to be like that. And so I realized that maybe there were other questions that they should be considering so that when they got to the end of their rope with what do you mean, maybe it's time for the next question, which was, or which is, uh, can you provide an example time to move out of the theoretical and into the concrete, you know? And then one of my favorites is what don't you mean? And that's the point that you see in lots of editorials and newspaper columns where people will say things like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this, I am saying instead that. And so between these three questions, I've discovered a student can get from the top of a page to the bottom of a page in a comp book with very little BS. And then I've got some more, uh, some deeper questions on the lower half of those arrows, like, um, can you um, define your terms? Um, You know, that's, that's for some, for a a deeper kind of writing assignment, I think something maybe a little bit more academic. Um, What are the implications of what you're saying? You know, uh, and that kind of works really well for the end of, of what somebody's writing. And so questions like these I've discovered can just sort of, help stimulate them because one of the real, one of the great problems that students face in their writing is what do I say next? Where do I go? Where do I go? in in a way that'll still make sense, you know? Um, and so any one of these questions, um, in any particular order can still lead to a coherent paragraph or page of discourse. Um, and so, um, this I found is a great way to avoid the problem that I had before, which was this notion that the students had to plan out their essay first, plan out what they're going to write, you know, in some kind of, um, a graphic organizer, um, and then convert it from graphic organizer status into presto an essay. Um, and you know, that's not the way I ever wrote and, and I love writing. I've always loved writing, but you know, I, I think I've, I benefited from, you know, you know, my granddad was a newspaper writer, you know, my, my parents were English majors, you know. So, yeah, I, what seemed to me natural, it's another thing that made it difficult for me as a teacher. These things, these things seemed to me to be so natural that it frustrated me when I saw my students struggle with them. And, and I made one of the great mistakes of teaching, which is to say, Oh, come on, it's easy. You know, how can you not get that? Yeah. You know, Cause I'd get irritated with it or now frustrated with my own failure. And that's what it really was, was frustration with my own inability to uh, to teach them effectively. Um, and once I understood that it wasn't easy, it wasn't natural. It wasn't um, just a, you know, the cakewalk that I thought it was, then I was in a position to treat my students more fairly, more humanely.
0: I feel like this is like teaching therapy for me. <laughs> I say, <"You> don't. <laughs> Cause sometimes I will say, oh, this should be easy. I'm like, Ooh, right. But I really like the, the strategy that you just shared instead of telling kids like, go, right. You have guiding questions for the students.
1: Right. Right. And yeah, these, that's a good way of putting it.
0: Right. And they're the guiding questions and they're not, they're not. So when I write my guiding questions, they're very content specific. For, for example, like what is globalization? Give me an example of globalization from the past. Right. Mm-hmm. But you're I love how you're talking about it in a different way. You're saying, like, let's not be specific in the content. Let's be general in this way. And so mm-hmm. the kids can explore writing, because then what you're doing is you're developing a love of writing, but you're also also developing independence in students. Right.
1: right, right? In right. This way. Yeah. It's, it's an attempt to restore their agency, which has been taken away by overly um, applied uh, scaffolding, you know, um, and, and, you know, I know, I know the appeal of scaffolding, uh, you know, because, you know, if you have a kid, you have if students um, doing things like filling out a, a, a graphic organizer to, to sort of chart out their paragraph. I mean, that's, that's a whole hour where they're working together. And, you know, they're, um, it's something they feel they can do. You know, it's often something they can do better than the, the final thing that you want them to do. That is the essay part. And so, yeah, you find you, you, it can be really, really tempting to, to overuse those kinds of things because it provides you with the illusion sometimes. Sometimes it's an illusion that real writing is happening, you know, or, or the, the kind of thinking that you want in, in writing. Is, is happening, but it's, it's not of the, I don't think it's at the same level of thinking. You know, when we're, when we're really thinking and writing, we are asking ourselves these questions. We are aware of the audience at the other end. Um, and we're willing to ask ourselves tough questions that lead to things like, to moves like, I'm not saying this, I'm saying that. You know, an awareness, for example, that people might be misunderstanding what you're saying and that you need to clarify and sharpen your message a little bit. And I find that when students do that, their writing suddenly takes on uh, a real, a, a greatly improved quality. This, it, it, it becomes something that I enjoy reading. And that's, that's another thing is that, you know, grading papers is, is the worst thing about teaching English. And it's you know how many how many hours precious hours of my life have I wasted writing things like awk you know in, for awkward in the margin of some student essay and how many weekends did I give up for that kind of thing and um I I've come now to the conclusion that it's just better to read their writing read it as read it as you would any writer you know put the pen down when you read it um. And only pick it up when you want to point out something that they've done really well. And, and, and if you need, if you feel the need to point out an error, do it in a way that that um, promotes their growth. You know, say to them, oh, you, this is close. This is, this is, you're almost there. This is the tail of a comma from being a perfect, right, branching smack talker, you know? <laughs> and so... Uh, so I, uh, you know, there's a guy named Joseph Williams who wrote this really great essay called The Phenomenology of Error. And, um, and in it, he placed, he argued that one of the things about error is that we are seeking it. When we read essays, we're often in search of the errors. But when we read the writing of real writers, we're not searching for their errors at all, even though they might be there. And he uh, intentionally placed Almost, I geez, I forget how many, but it it was more than fifty, and it might have been yes, I forget. But he placed dozens of minor errors um, in his own essay, and he asked at the end. He he made the confession at the end that he put these there, and did anybody notice? And the answer was for most people, no, because we give to somebody like him the credit of the uh, the uh, the benefit of the doubt. Whereas we give to our students, you know, this expectation. Oh, yeah, here we go. Get out. I'm going to get out old red now and I'm going to straighten this kid out, you know. So um, but if we read our students work like we want them to approach their work, if we want them to approach their work as writers, not as supplicants, not as um, people who are have had all of their agency removed from them and don't know what to do or what to say next. If that's a quality that we want from them as writers, then I think it's only fair that we read them as writers and and not necessarily to, to find their errors, but to see what they have to say and whether they can make me think about this issue that we're writing about in in an in a new way that is a result of their perspective as individuals.
0: I like your perspective, you're saying like, let's shift from error finding and error correcting to yeah. attempt celebrating.
1: Yeah, right. right. Yeah. That's a good way of putting attempt celebrating. I love it.
0: <laughs> I also wrote down what you said that like, you said, instead of prompt completing, well, I, this is my uh, synopsis of it. Instead of having students uh, complete prompts, you're shifting to uh, crafting a message. Mm-hmm. And then when students are crafting a message, it's not about completing a prompt, or completing uh, answering bullet points uh, that, that you, you've placed, it's about how can we intentionally craft a message that gets a point across the most beautifully and effectively as possible.
1: Right, right. And, uh, and they've got to be free to, to explore. And that's one of the problems. That's one of the limitations, I think, of the um, graphic organizer approach is that it kind of cuts off exploration. It cuts off inquiry. Um, sometimes a writer does need to digress. Um, and oftentimes, these digressions amount to the most pleasurable reading in the whole piece. Uh, but uh, yeah, and they need to, and the students need to have the ability or the freedom to be able to to do that, and then be able to come back to the point that they um, that the digression was meant to address. You know.
0: Well, I'm going to send all my kids over to you for for <laughs> English instruction. <laughs> they I'll will come out a, to,
1: I'll come out to are Ban- in Bangkok. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll come yeah, out there. Yeah. Come
0: on back <laughs> anytime. <laughs> um, let's end the podcast with this. I just. Before I go to my last question, which is a metaphor, let's answer this one last question. Why? Why is grammar in so instruction? Like, why write a book about grammar?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed in myself for having done that. I, I thought I'd have a better, I thought I might have a better book in me than something on grammar. <laughs> you know? it's like a mystery novel with lots of uh, sex and violence or something. But, but instead, yeah, I wrote a book on grammar. Um, you know, I just got to a point where grammar became fascinating, not odious, <laughs> or I could, I could put this in a not, but form. Uh, I discovered that grammar is not odious, but fascinating. See, there's the, there's my grammatical and rhetorical shift there. Um, and, uh, that, uh, you know, one of the things that, that got me thinking about it also is, uh, my, uh. My nephew and my nieces are multilingual. Um, my brother-in-law, Gustavo, is from Guatemala. And uh, my sister, of course, is from California. And, uh, and they have these lovely children. And, and I'm so jealous of these kids because they're already smarter than me. <laughs> you know, it, it, they've, got, they've got two languages already, you know, and they speak Spanish, you know, perfect Spanish to Papa. And perfect English to their mother, and and it just goes to show, you know, how hardwired we are for grammatical systems. And it deserves more. It just, I, I guess, yeah, that's maybe a good way of putting it. Is so, that you know, I began my answer, Tan, by apologizing for being interested in grammar, but it deserves better. That might be the real answer. It deserves better than what we've. Reduced it to, we've reduced it to things, horrible things like sentence diagramming, which are, which is, you know, I can see sentence diagramming being fun, a fun kind of thing to do, like 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 Sudoku or you know, uh, like some kind of puzzle that you do in the newspaper, you know. But it's, but yeah, exactly. But it's not the basis for language instruction, you know. it's it's it's, it's not the basis for writing instruction. You're not going to become a better writer by doing things like that. They're not going to become better writers by circling adjectives in um, in worksheets um, or putting the commas in pre pre slugged sentences. You know that don't have punctuation. This kind of thing um, is what grammar has been reduced to. But I think that if we can focus on this issue of grammar and rhetoric and how how the two depend on one another, how, they're, how they overlap, then we can raise grammar from the ashes, so to speak, and uh, make it the glorious Phoenix that it is. So,
0: I think when I was listening to you, I was thinking, okay, I get, I get what he's saying. It's, they deserve better. You said they deserve better. And I finished the sentence. Students because, deserve better. Yeah, students yeah, deserve better. Definitely. Grammar deserves better because students messages mm-hmm. deserve an audience
1: and the students um, deserve respect for their linguistic abilities right right and and if we begin with um, an approach that that acknowledges that first and foremost these kids are you know my my niece and nieces and nephew are better at grammar than I am not, I mean, not that they can, you know, write a book like between the commas, but, you know, that they they have this ability and and I see it whenever I whenever I visit them, which is as often as possible. So, um, yeah, it's it's very much like that. We need to give our students their due right. um, and that they are skillful users of language um, often more skillful i mean when we speak about multilingual students they're more skillful than i am you know i have english and i have a, a, a you know one year of college spanish i have two years of high school german you know i can go to those countries and read the signs you know i i can i can order <laughs> i can order something i you know I, I i can some some pretty basic conversation although in germany if i go there they'll just speak english to me but um, but um I wish that I could be as multilingual as my students are. Um, and so I come to them, I approach them as I guess I've, I've, I've reversed roles. I'm the supplicant, you know, they, they they don't have to, uh, you know, make obeisance to me as some kind of grammar expert. They already are the grammar experts. And, um, and I want to start with that as, the uh, that's that's my starting point that's my departure point
0: well the starting point of a, a, a great teacher of multilingual teacher is the mindset and you already have an yes. assets-based mindset around students and we see that in this conversation and in your book as well so marty let's end with this i'm going to give you a like a grammar structure here uh, what should t- it's called traffic light teaching uh, what should teachers? what it's called traffic light teaching. Okay. It's red light. What should teachers stop doing? Yellow light. What should teachers continue doing? And green light. What should teachers start doing in terms of their instruction with grammar?
1: Okay. So red light, we've already discussed, we, we need to stop the, the, what, what qualifies as traditional grammar instruction. It doesn't do anything to help make students better writers or users of the language. What was the yellow one again?
0: continue doing
1: oh to continue yeah proceed with caution right <laughs> well continue assigning writing um have them write as much as possible and when you do it um you know don't worry about the errors so much don't sweat the error so much there's this idea that you know uh but how will they learn they're going to learn but they're going to learn in their interactions with you um, if they are positive ones. So be as positive, proceed with caution um, and be as positive as possible with what you're seeing Um, and and be loath to ever point out something just as a mistake. Avoid that as much as you can. And for green, um, green was start doing Yeah, start focusing on sentence development, start focusing on um, and having them find ways to extend their sentences rather than limit them. One of the things that often happens in uh, in so-called remedial courses and also in um, uh, courses for, you know, second language, third language students is is this notion that the students that that the, the sentences need to be shorter to avoid error. Um, And I don't think that's doing justice. So I say it's not doing them justice. I say make the go ahead and and let them write, let them make mistakes and and talk about those mistakes in a way that celebrates what they're trying to do Um, and talk about their mistakes in a way that promotes their growth Um, so that they become interested in becoming more adept at this kind of thing, instead of f- retreating in fear, um, which is what the usual sort of grammar enforcement model causes.
0: Well, Marty, oh my goodness, how did an hour go by?
1: It hasn't been uh, an hour? <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: Uh, somehow along your 30 years of teaching, working at Independence, you have become, and also, a very effective teacher of multilingual. Thank you. Every time I, t- I as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, ooh, yeah, he gets it. He gets our kids and they're lucky to have you. And we're so fortunate that you spent this time sharing with us. Thank you, Mark. I
1: really appreciate that. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun.
0: It has really been a lot of fun. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. I love listening to podcasts. Very rarely do I re listen to a podcast I just finished. However, this podcast conversation will be replayed the second it ends. That's because I feel like I have another way of teaching grammar that moves from error correcting to attempts celebrating. I especially love redefining grammar less on a focus of punctuation and mechanics and more on a focus of placement of the words for effect. I can see how that change in perspective can add a purpose to learning grammar. Grammar instruction becomes a way to effectively communicate an important message more than being grammatically correct. Our job is to teach students, how to be intentional with their words so their voices can be heard. Marty, thank you for helping us learn how to listen differently. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.